welcome to My Faculty Podcast at Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of Research and Doctoral Services. This is Dr. Lee Statlander, and I'm the coordinator of faculty research training at Walden University. With me today are Amy Sickle and Leilani Gelsted. Can you guys want to introduce yourselves? Amy? Hi. Uh, yes, I'm um, Amy Sickle. I'm the program director for the PhD psychology program. And Leilani? I'm Leilani Gelsted. I'm chair of the Institutional Review Board and the university's research integrity officer. And today we're going to talk about academic integrity. So let's start with kind of a definition. Um, so what do you both think about what is academic integrity? Amy, you want to start? Um, sure. It's, it's actually all about representing one's work accurately and honestly. Um, and not taking the work of somebody else and and using it for your own credit. That's kind of a nice big general um, definition. I'm sure Leilani can narrow that down a, a bit. I agree. And I think also as much as possible that the the data from which um, you know all of our findings and conclusions are based are are trustworthy. Incredible and, credible and um, reliable. So it, it ties in, you know, to methodology as well as um, ethics, I would say. That's great. So what kind of issues might faculty encounter about academic integrity? Well, I'd be happy to, to start there. You know, I think there are a couple ways, right? When students are in their coursework, the academic integrity piece um, comes in with the assignments that they're completing, the discussions that they're writing, and making sure that, again, what they're submitting was written by themselves for the purpose of this class. So sometimes, for example, faculty will encounter students who reuse work from a prior class, uh, and that's another kind of issue with this. And then moving to dissertation, um, you know, as Leilani mentioned, the data piece, that's another area in addition to making sure that the written words are from the student themselves, but then also that the data is actually honestly collected, um, you know, in the terms of IRB approval. So those are areas faculty sometimes do encounter data sets with students where they feel or they have um, a sense that the data doesn't fit a normal pattern or a regular pattern or they have concerns that the data might not be um, real data. Yeah, and I would add that um, sometimes if there's an academic integrity in, in the research phase for a doctoral student, sometimes it's due to poor understanding of methodology. There are times when, you know, for example, maybe a faculty member is looking at a student's themes from interviews they've done, and then they say, hmm, let me see the transcripts. and the transcripts seem really just too perfect. Like nobody talks like that. I'm, I'm you know, you're fairly certain you're reading it thinking, no, this is not how people would have interviewed. This very much seems like it's paraphrase and maybe reflects a lot of the student's bias. And then the faculty members might say, oh, can I take a look at those recordings and compare them to transcripts? And sure enough, you know, there's a mismatch and the student didn't understand that verbatim transcription is key and that not infusing your own biases as a researcher 
are also key. And so there are times like that. Um, I, I, from where I sit, I think that's one of the most common um, situations where there's a lack of integrity in the findings because the methodology was not followed as intended or as um, is, is uh, you know, we accept usually in the field of qualitative, qualitative social science research that they're going to be verbatim transcriptions and that, you know, the researcher will work at their biases and try to manage those biases. Um, so that's very, very common. And thankfully, it's easily remedied because the student could, in that case, could go back and just retranscribe, reanalyze the data and and have a much more, uh, have, have findings with greater integrity. And then there are other times, maybe the opposite side of the spectrum um, is when Thankfully, it seems to be pretty rare, but when a student knowingly um, just creates fake data because they don't want to take the time to collect um, interview data or survey data. And then there's a lot of stuff in the middle where it may not seem to be blatantly made up and it may not seem to be as simple as just not understanding methodology, but that gray area in the middle is really, really challenging for faculty and um, those situations seem to be often arise when faculty sort of have a gut feeling they're looking at the findings that doesn't quite seem right. Like either the dots aren't connecting between the methodology and the findings and you know, they're thinking, wait a minute, how would they have concluded this based on the interview questions we approved? Like that's just not connecting. Or maybe the connections are too perfect and, um, you know, it just seems like everything fell into place just as the researcher thought, and it, it's just too perfect, um, unrealistically so. Um, and there can also be situations maybe in quantitative or even the descriptive part of, of either qualitative or quantitative when you're looking at the, um, the balance of who the participants are, and it either seems too perfect or um, in one case, there were um, there was a student looking at hygienists in a dental hygienists in a particular state, and the demographics they were reporting, you know, clearly seemed off just by intuition wise, the ages and the gender and the racial makeup, especially in this particular state. And then when it's pretty easy just to go to the state board of health and, and look at what is the what are the demographics of this population in this state of dental hygienists and in this situation, the faculty members saw that, no, this, this data set is not possible. And that was one of the major clues or indicators that this, this was falsified. Um, and so, um, but other parts of the data set seem pretty realistic. And um, in, if I were to guess, I would say that that student began the journey intending to collect data and collecting some data and then getting a lower response rate than anticipated and then proceeded at some point to falsify data. So maybe they got, maybe they needed 100 responses, got 15 and then made up 85. So it was a combination of real data and false data. Now, and that's what I mean by this gray area um, where it's, you know, obviously the student was in a tough spot and they didn't realize there were other things they could have done for support but then for faculty to deal with that we certainly don't want results out there in the field based on data that were not real that would be a very that would be a great disservice to the field 
So we've been talking about like manufactured data and that type of thing. Do you ever see where students like copy from an old dissertation or you know from a journal article or something like that the data or the results is that ever an issue it is and you know we have our various um you know safe assign and turn it in we have our checks but they actually don't catch everything um and some of the times when um in some in some situations google can catch things better than our very fancy um plagiarism detection software. For example, when the, um, the findings are in another language, um, that some of those have made it through um, SafeAssign um, and Turnitin when we used to use Turnitin. And Google was able to detect that this is from a study that was published in Korean. So, the, you know, because the characters weren't, uh, you know, Google's, I guess, is smart enough to, <laughs> to run that type of um, uh, comparison check. And another thing is um, microfiche. A lot of, uh, for whatever reason, there were, um, I don't know when they stopped using microfiche, but some of the situations where we have um, found out that part or a pretty large part of a dissertation was copied, um, was copied from a microfiche dissertation. And in that particular case, the student had confessed that they hired someone to do the dissertation and that person they hired simply went and copied something off of mm -hmm. microfiche. So obviously they're very savvy and know how to evade being caught. And um, I, I don't, I think this can happen in any setting, honestly, any university, whether land-based or online. And so th those types of they call themselves, you know, consultants, um, are often aggressively pursue doctoral students and try to sell their services and students get emails. And if they're in any doctoral student support groups online or in social media, they're seeing lots of ads or not, they're not even ads, but someone might post something casually like, oh, my dissertation's stressing me out. I really want to be done this quarter. And then you'll see people post publicly, oh, I, my services includes a three-week, you know, a package for delivering the final dissertation in three weeks or something ridiculous. Um, but anyway, the, it's, um, it, those things have happened, unfortunately. How could faculty recognize if like data is falsified, what should they be looking for? That's a very good question. Um, and I think Leilani mentioned it a little bit when you get that sense of looking at the data that it appears too perfect um, or it appears, um, I don't know, just to follow some sort of particular pattern. I'm thinking in the, in the case of quantitative data. Um, you know, I think I have had faculty, for example, on the data and academic integrity issue raised concerns when a student had not collected any data one week <laughs> and then let's say within two weeks had suddenly collected all of yes. the data they needed. Mm -hmm. so fast turnaround time might be an indicator. Yes, and some of the situations where uh, the student didn't follow the proposal steps as intended this is not very common, but it has happened a couple times where they show up before the proposal is even approved and they, act, you know, turn in a complete dissertation with data and then they'll kind of backtrack and say, oh, that was 
that was just a draft. And I, I was just, I was just making something up because I knew I would eventually have to enter something. And um, I, I perceive that a lot of these situations, there's a consultant involved because many times when we're asking the student to explain what happened, the student just has no answers. So they don't even give excuses or they just have no answers. And then there's a delay oftentimes between the responses. And I can tell from the writing style and the emails, it's another person writing these responses. So um, I personally think that consultants are the root of a lot of these data set integrity problems. Um, and, you know, the, um, the defense, thank goodness, is part of every, every university's um, doctoral capstone uh, process. And if a student cannot explain how they collected the data and explain how they, you know, what, what they did to process the data, you know, whether it's transcribing or doing computations on a raw quantitative data set, and then how they arrived at the analyses and made their conclusions, then they haven't really earned the degree. You know, just showing up with a completed dissertation is just half the battle, or I don't know what proportion it is, but it's just part of the, you know, the, the capstone accomplishment, being able to understand it, that presentation, that, that defense is really important. And so, um, even though sometimes it might feel like a formality, uh, and I'm not saying, you know, we should make it totally stressful for doctoral students, but I think there needs to be more than just reading off of the slides. And it, it should be um, a conversation between a committee and a student to really dig in and, and talk about their results. And, you know, maybe what were some of the challenges and what were, you know, some of the surprising findings. And I mean, that's important for the doctoral student anyway, as they, in, in their process of emerging as a as a doctoral level scholar, but I think um, in in some of the situations that we've come across, the concerns arose because the student could not do anything but read off the slides that uh, were prepared possibly by someone else for the dissertation defense. Now that you brought it up, uh, what at Walden? What are the data requirements for students? I mean, are they allowed to have consultants? Oh, good question. Well, they are allowed. Well, I want to differentiate between external consultants that are outside of Walden and Walden does have in-house consultant services for writing, for methodology, and, you know, they can make an appointment. Actually, maybe one of you could talk more about that. Um, they can get direct support. And uh, of course, there's the committee, but the committee and the student have access to expert methodologists in both quantitative and qualitative who are going to do anything that an external consultant um, would be allowed to do. Now, would they analyze the data for the student? No, but an external consultant should not be doing that either. And the goal, um, if a student is going to use any type of consultant, they need to be transparent about that with their committee. And um, I would, you know, recommend that, it, and we may be going in the direction at some point of having a more formal, like kind of registering your consultant or just a form that says a disclosure. Yes, I used the consultant for this, this, and this. And that form would clearly state, you know, that consultants can advise they can give feedback on a draft but they should not be doing the analysis they should not be actually rewriting the materials they should be giving feedback and they should be um 
you know, maybe advising on the types of, let's say, statistic, statistical tests or the way the interpretation is done, as opposed to just taking the data and giving the student back a completed, you know, chapter four. And so, um, and there's some gray area there because, you know, we do allow transcribers. And um, if a student had um, a data set, let's say for, maybe they're doing a secondary analysis from an organization and the data set is really complex and sometimes they might need to literally consult with someone at the organization, you know, so that there's, there's, that's why the committee being in the loop is so important because there are times when a consultant is completely reasonable and not an academic integrity problem. And yet I think most of the faculty know when when it's a problem and if they don't know they can always talk to their program director um, essentially when they're um, if it comes down to the um, the conceptualizing of the study that's a no-no the consultant should not be designing the research questions and you know picking the analyses but there are students who may benefit from working with an editor you know to to refine the way they're 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 speaking because they may be struggling with how to articulate what they're trying to say or you know they've got this draft and um, the committee finds it hard to follow and and that may be, may be a time when an editor is appropriate but talking to the um, the committee about the role of that consultant is definitely really important and just to clarify the office of research and doctoral services at Walden do you have does have methodologists available to help students. They can have individual appointments, they can go to group meetings and ask questions. Um, they will advise the student on how to analyze data and help them with SPSS and stuff. So we have a lot of resources if they want to use that. Oh, and, and one more thing that I've used as a committee member is that you know, let's say I'm advising, I'm, a, I'm sort of maybe even serving as the methodologist on a committee and I hit a question that I've never run into before. I can reach out as a committee member to the methodologists and get direct support and they will provide, I mean, honestly, they've been extremely helpful in getting me to that point of where, you know, I felt confident of either resources I could give the student to look at to clarify the situation or maybe even clarifying a, a terminology or you know something with them um, you know the analysis that uh, was a little different than anticipated and what an alternative approach might be because of how the data set came out so um, yeah even in times um, when the student might feel like well I don't even know what questions to ask when the methodologist is involved as they should be um, definitely that uh, the student maybe and sometimes it could be the student going directly to the ORDS methodologists um, and if that does not seem um, appealing <laughs> to the student or if they just are so lost they don't even know where to start the a meeting between the committee I'm sorry the methodologist or and the student or their um, you know, part of helping to translate what the student's trying to say is um, that's been helpful in my case in some situations. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm a committee member and I suspect that there's an issue with a student's dissertation, what should I do? 
Well, I certainly have had faculty reach out to me as program director with questions like that. And, and what we would do typically, I would advise them to be in touch with the chair and then bring in the URR or consultant um, to take a look at the issue and discuss it. And then um, often at that point, people bring the program director in at the program level to take a look at what's happening. So for faculty, for sure, they always have the committee should be a resource for um, the committee. And for that reason, um, it, you know, I really think that it's one of the ways that faculty can help prevent um, problems um, or maybe lessen academic integrity issues is by being in good contact with one another when they're, you know, mentoring students. So the chair, the second member, and the, either the URR or the consultant third member um, are in, are in con consultation throughout the program, right, throughout the student's um, work. And the same would go for students in class, um, you know, for uh, those who are teaching and an academic integrity instance um, pops up in class. Uh, we ha certainly have our protocol for classroom, um, but they can, faculty can certainly reach out to program coordinators and, and directors uh, for any kind of assistance they need following the protocol. And actually one thing, if I could say, you know, Leilani mentioned a while back about um, students with data integrity, not necessarily understanding the data and misrepresenting it um, inadvertently, if you will. And that happens a lot with writing as well. And I think students not knowing how to paraphrase, for example, mm -hmm. is a big issue. And so something that faculty can do as well as being in contact with students a lot, you know, often and getting to know the students is making sure that, you know, um, you know, that we're putting out there that we're being clear for students about how to paraphrase properly and providing them with access to resources that help them understand it. Because it's not always intuitive immediately, um, you know, with a lot of the academic materials that we're reading. Yes, and I, I would add, um, because this is a real challenging phase for a faculty member when they perceive that, you know, there might be something a little off or funny about the status that it seems off. And so, you know, like Amy said, bringing out or, or being in touch with the other committee members, someone else may have a little more clarity in the situation. And at least you can feel more confident if the others say, yeah, I agree. It's it seems off to me as well. And, and OK, you're not sure where to go from there. You can definitely reach out to your program director. Um, and the program director may reach out to my office in my role, either as the IRB chair or as research integrity officer. Um, IRB chair and the IRB oversees the data collection part of it. Um, and so if there's anything odd about the actual data, what we'll be looking at is does the the way the student says the data was collected were collected, does that match what was approved by the IRB? And, you know, in some cases, if it seems to be um, either really just unclear where this data set came from, we have ways of confirming of uh, whether or not the data set happened as the student said it was, you know, discrete ways that are just to kind of checks. Um, and then it's really important that the faculty members have the data set, the raw data set in hand. And so I, you know, that doesn't mean the tidy transcription or that final SPSS data set. The raw data set is the very original format, which would be the, if for interviews, it would be the recordings. And then 
for, um, let's say, online surveys, it would be whatever is dumped directly into SurveyMonkey. And so that usually is a some sort of um, spreadsheet, usually in Excel, but you can get it in a variety of formats. And you know, not all, not <laughs> most people don't exactly enjoy looking at uh, a messy a spreadsheet where nothing is summarized. But we can help with that. You know, between the program director and and my office, we can assist with that. We've done some of these, and and there have been times when we were able to identify. Okay, this doesn't seem to be a data falsification situation. It seems to be a situation of just not following your protocol. Um, you know, not following your chapter three protocol as you were supposed to, and, and that's easily remedied. Um, and at Walden in particular, we're trying to institute a cultural shift, which is, uh, you know, toward data transparency. And we are trying to make it clearer to all students up front that you you not only need to be prepared for, for years and years, at least 20 years that I'm aware of, Wallen has said you need to be prepared to share your data at, if requested. But that isn't quite far enough we're finding. And so we're going to start making it more routine that um, data set, the raw data set is shared. That doesn't mean, you know, the faculty member has to pour over every detail of it. But part of it is just the expectation that if you know you have to show the raw data set, hopefully you'll be less tempted to take shortcuts like hiring a consultant or, you know, doing the type of, um, I, I think it's going to do a lot also to just help with um, preventing students from wasting a lot of their time going down the wrong path with a, a weak or poor analysis strategy. And so um, sharing the raw data set as a preliminary step to presenting the findings will be an important um, step. Now, occasionally, um, we do ha have had a posted policy on this for a couple of years. And occasionally, though, faculty meet some resistance from students who feel, uh, they just say, I don't want to share my data set. It's private. I, I don't want to. And, and that's just not a reasonable response. And so, um, you know, we've got some um, language that we'll be working on on sharing with faculty, kind of sample language, how you would maybe ask for the data set. It, it should be in the coming months and years, it should be clearer in all of our materials and in our um, course shells that it's an expectation, it's not an option. <laughs> it's, um, and then you're, they're also students are required to have it in electronic format. So it's not an acceptable excuse to say, well, I used Believe it or not, we've heard this even in recent years. Well, I made uh, tapes and I don't want my original tapes to get lost in the mail and I don't want to spend the money on copying these tapes. So, you know, they need to be in electronic format, the recordings. And then, you know, understandably, not many people use paper surveys. But if you do, um, that raw data, I've had paper surveys delivered to me for an inquiry. And that, you know, that's part of the process of, um, sharing your raw data if, if they're going to be using any type of paper measure. So we've talked about a number of things that faculty can do to prevent integrity issues. Um, is there anything else that you feel like you would like to mention that faculty should be thinking about? Well, one thing I think would help in addition to what we've talked about earlier about, you know, kind of having a culture of data transparency 
is to help set students' expectations regarding how long it takes to collect data. Because if they are entering the situation thinking data collection is going to take a week or two, <laughs> and then they're on week three or four, the temptation is very strong to go with a shortcut method, which would obviously be a disservice to the field, not to mention getting them kicked out of school potentially with no degree. So um, that's something that my office has been working on um, collecting. So asking alums, how long did your data collection take you? And then to disseminate that information to um, doctoral students will be soon sharing that information in residencies and some other formats. And I mean, obviously committees some often have knowledge of this from the students they've mentored, but there can be such a variety and it's important, I think, for students to understand the range. So just for example, from the alums we surveyed this year in 2022, we surveyed a couple hundred alums and asked them how long it took for them to reach their, to attain their sample size. So this is only alums who actually did surveys or interviews. It doesn't include any of the ones who did secondary analyses. So they said 35% actually were able to collect their data in one to three weeks, and they were the lucky ones. Another 30% took four to seven weeks, so somewhere between one and two months. And then another 20% took eight to 11 weeks, so getting into the three-month range. So it's, it's not unusual for students to take, oh, sorry, and there's one more group. Another 20% took 12 plus weeks. So if you just take a step back from that, 40% um, of our doctoral students take more than two months to collect data, 40%. So that's a very normal experience. And I, I could pretty much tell you, because a lot of them come to IRB office hours, that at that point they're very frustrated. And they um, are feeling kind of um, desperate and, and uh, sometimes feeling like no one told me it would be this hard. So they've got that a little bit of, um, yeah, just uh, they're not sure. <laughs> Uh, what they're supposed to be doing next. So I really would recommend one thing that, um, aside from helping to set student expectations, faculty can really, as much as possible, help students prepare a backup plan or plans, like a plan B and a plan C, if their original recruitment method turns out to not yield as many participants as intended. And so that's another question we asked in the survey of the alums. Did you get more participants than you thought or less? And 60%, actually it was 58% said they expected more volunteers than they actually got. So that's, you know, pretty much a majority of our students saying they got fewer than they expected. And so that tells me they did not have reasonable expectations. And um, when we asked these alums, okay, how many people did you invite? How many people actually volunteered? The most common volunteer rate was under 25%. So that is saying that um, the, the most um, common experience for students would be to send out 100, um, let's say, invitations and then get 25 volunteers. And I'm just picking 100 out of the air to demonstrate for 25%. Let's say, you know, like for interview studies, if someone's seeking 10 participants, they should plan on sending out at least 40 invitations. And a lot of our students, you can tell from the way that they say, oh, I'm recruiting at this one site. And then you ask them, well, how many people meet the inclusion criteria at that site? And they may say, oh, 15, but I only need 10. 
that those are unrealistic expectations. If they need 10, they need to find at least 40 people who meet the inclusion criteria, at least, because there were some students who had volunteer rates that were even below um, 25%. You know, we had a few students who said their response rate was in the five to 10% range. In my own experience as a researcher, and a lot of times I'm doing surveys of alums <laughs> and interviews of alums and doctoral students, my response rates typically between 10 and 20%. And that's with a gift card, like a $25 gift card. So, you know, all of this is um, information we are going to be putting into residencies and some other platforms for students to uh, be more aware of. And we'll probably be uh, redoing this survey periodically because this data is based on, you know, I don't know if you still consider early 20, well, okay, these students um, were surveyed in 2022, many of them collected their data in 2021, as well as 2022. So some of this is reflecting pandemic issues, possibly. So we're going to try the data collection again, the same survey, probably in about a year, when we're hopefully <laughs> post pandemic. And, and try to make sure that both students and faculty can have some awareness of what, what is typical for data collection timeframes. Very good. So we're almost out of time. Amy, any last comments? Uh, no, I think that, I mean, Leilani hit a lot of great pieces with regard to setting expectations that covers a lot of ground. And I think it's just very important for our faculty to remember our goal here is to, you know, um, train individuals who have, you know, who, who practice research um, with integrity, who act with integrity, and who produce honest and original work. And so really stepping back and trying to foster that culture from the beginning of our interactions with students all the way through coursework and through the end of you know, the dissertation is very important and there are a lot of pieces to it. Leilani, any last comment? Um, no, I, I do just want to let faculty know they can reach out for support. And you know that gray area, dilemma it's it can be frustrating and you know we often feel like you know i'm on the students team i don't want them to feel that i'm undermining them or that i don't believe them but you can reach out for support to my office or program director if you aren't sure and and you know get an, another opinion often we can loop in a methodologist to give another you know kind of outside opinion someone who's never seen it before and so we're here to help very good thank you both so much I know this information is going to be really helpful for faculty, so thank you. Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by audionautics.com, and I'm Dr. Lee Statlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services.